0: For Angela Reddick-Wright, geography was definitely destiny. Reddick-Wright moved from Birmingham, Alabama to a working-class neighborhood in Compton, California when she was nine years old and then won a scholarship to the Brentwood School in the exclusive west side of Los Angeles, California. Those moves would be to be the most transformational events of her life. You know, at young ages, people had you know these
1: exclusive cars, and you know spring break. They say, "Where are you going for spring break?" I'm like, "I'm uh, going home." And they, on spring break day would be going off to Hawaii or to Europe or what have you. So it was just a totally different experience, but it opened my eyes to a new world, the new possibilities and opportunities.
0: Reddick Wright went on to become an employment and workplace mediator, arbitrator, and workplace and Title IX investigator. Hello everyone, I'm Chitra Raghavan and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Joining me now is Angela Reddick-Wright, founder of the Reddick Law Group. Angela, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. So where did you grow up and what was your childhood like before you moved to Compton, California? Well, um, my father was in the military.
1: So I actually was born in uh, Frankfurt area, Germany. Um, But I don't remember much about it because we left there when I was one or two years old. And we went back to my parents' hometown, which is Birmingham, Alabama. And that's where both my parents and their siblings um, grew up. And so I lived in Birmingham, Alabama until I was, until I was nine years old. And from there, my mom, my parents divorced um, when I was young and my mom seeking a better life for us um, post civil rights, Birmingham, Alabama, um, moved to California as a part of the great migration of Southerners that either moved to the West or moved North. And so, um, some of her siblings had moved west already to Compton, to California, um, specifically Compton, California. And so, we moved there when I was nine years old.
0: So, growing up as a young girl in Birmingham in the Black South, how did that initially begin to shape your views? Um, well, it,
1: it had a great impact on me. I grew. I was born in 1969, and so I. I was young, you know, as the civil rights movement was starting to close out and evolve into a different type of movement than the the type that my my parents and their parents and and so forth experienced one with Jim Crow and dogs and beatings and and so forth. So I sort of grew up in an I as a child I was shielded from a lot of that. So I grew up in a sort of an idyllic environment, you know, with grandparents on both sides where um, you would sit on the porch and you would say hello to people as they passed by. And everyone was referred to as kinfolk because we all knew each other. I remember like Southern traditions, like sitting with one of my grandmothers and drinking coffee with her, even as a young kid, kid out the bowl. So on one level, it was idyllic and had a lot of southern traditions, but I do remember uh, you know, obviously, even though I wasn't in the heart of marching or anything like that, I have, you know, memories of those conversations and of people still being very active in the movement. And my maternal grandmother in particular, Fleeta Gills, um, she was a home health care worker and was very active in the civil rights movement and inner community and um, in the union that represented the workers. And so I remember as a child going with her to her union meetings and hearing the discussions about um, better wages for workers and better conditions for workers. And I also remember being out on the picket lines with her at least two or three times as a child, not quite realizing what it was all about, but understanding that you know, my grandmother and her colleagues and others were fighting for for better conditions, and so those that experience coupled with being surrounded by the remnants of in the conversations of post civil rights Alabama, kind of really shaped my understanding and helped me to have a a commitment to you know advocacy and you know, um, looking out for others and being sensitive to issues, you know, social, social issues. It really um, shaped my, my experience. Although, you know, I only grew up there till it was nine, until I was nine, but it was, it was significant, even in that, that short amount of time.
0: And then, so what was your move to Compton like? And, and then you also had another a kind of big change in the school that you uh, began to attend. So tell us about kind of those shifts. Right, so uh, we moved to the, the famous Compton,
1: California. Um, many would 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 use the word infamous, and I like to say famous um, because I believe there are two Comptons. And so we, you know, we've all heard the movie Straight Out of Compton, and famous rappers like Ice Cube and others that are from Compton and made it famous in a way. And I actually grew up when I watched the movie Straight Out of Out of Compton. I realized that I was growing up in Compton during the time that many of the the things that we learned about in the movie, but I was, I guess, again, I kind of grew up in an idyllic world. And then a side of Compton that people don't see, which is a you know, working class community of individuals and families that are really just trying to make a better life for themselves. And so that's the part of Compton that I grew up in. So not that I wasn't surrounded by gangs or knew about gang activity or drug activity, but the great majority of people in my world were people who were just doing what everyday Americans do. They go to work, they feed their families, provide for their families. We were very active and I, I I was very active in, in my church and my mom made sure I was, you know, always had something to do, whether it be at church or other community activities or enrichment activities. So that was my Compton, even though, there was sort of these surrounding things happening. But fortunately, I grew up in a community of people who looked out for their kids and made sure that we had a positive um, upbringing. And so um, I went to my elementary school. I started elementary school in Compton at Longfellow Elementary. And then I went to junior high school at a school called Willowbrook and our principal, His name was Lawrence Freeman and he reminds me of the principal from that movie, um, lean on me, whereas he was a strict disciplinarian, but he cared about the kids and he challenged us to be our best. And, um, he, through his relationships, we established a partnership with a a well-to-do independent private school, um, in an area called uh, called Brentwood in Los Angeles, which is kind of a, um, You know, well-to-do area of Los Angeles um, near bordering UCLA and Beverly Hills and Bel Air and Palisades and places like that. And so he had um, built a partnership with that school where each year they would accept a number of students from our junior high school to come there on scholarship. And so in ninth grade, well, I I didn't go until 10th grade, but I got accepted in ninth grade. I was fortunate to be able to go. And um, that experience, coupled with moving from Birmingham to California, it was another one of those experiences that really changed and impacted my life. Um, I found myself living in a dual world, um, one where each day I went home every day to Compton and Um, had my family and my friends and my church and others there and, you know, continue to have a great life growing up there. But each day, whether it be by bus, you know, city bus, or by the time I turned 16, I got like a little bucket of a car. And when I first went there, my parents would take us there. And it's about a 20, it's about 20 miles from where we live. And at the time, fortunately, LA traffic was not as bad as it is now, but it still was a drive. Um, and so however we got, there, I got there and there were other students that we all were coming from the same area and we would go together. Um, we were going into a different world, one that was very different from the world that we lived in. Um, and it was the kind of world some students, you know, went. And they were successful, such as myself. We were successful. We were able to make the transition and able to like kind of maintain our sense of who we were and where we grew up, but also understand the value of this experience and getting an education that was at this you know higher level than than where we were. And I had a great education, but the the level of um, added. Um, Experiences and the types of classes that we were able to take, um, was just at a in the focus classes and the much smaller classes were just at a much higher level than we had um, in public school, and um, and then also we were around people that had substantial wealth and substantial opportunities and so forth, and you know at young ages people had. You know these exclusive cars, and you know spring break. They say, "Where are you going for spring break?" I'm like, "I'm going home." And they on spring break day would be going off to Hawaii or to Europe or what have you. So it was just a totally different experience, but it opened my eyes to a new world, the new possibilities and opportunities. And it was just another experience that shaped um, what I believe became my dual life of service to my community where I grew up, but also taking advantage of other opportunities that allowed me to grow, to expand my horizons and to to just see the world bigger than, you know, the the limited opportunities or exposure that I may have had, you know, based on um, where I grew up. Um, So it was was definitely a significant transition.
0: And would you also say was the most challenging and if so why um challenging
1: first it was challenging academically because i had always been a superstar student and and i want to be careful to say not to say oh my education before that was bad because it was amazing and i had amazing teachers and as i mentioned principal freeman who really just shaped you know, much of who I am today. But if you can imagine going from a school, say with hundreds or thousands of students to one, I think in my class at Brentwood, my class was about 75 students. So uh, probably in ninth grade at junior high school, my class was probably five, 600 students or so, maybe less than that, I can't remember, but definitely more than 75. So in a class of 75, The teachers obviously can provide much more focused attention um, in a school where, you know, parents are able to invest, you know, financially in other means and resources um, and bring added activities and exposure to, to the school. It just made a difference. Um, So when I went to Brentwood students had taken classes like Latin and, Um, much more extended history courses or math courses, et cetera, that I had not been exposed to. And so it took me a good year just to adjust academically, academically. And fortunately, I had teachers that were vested in my success there, and they really took time with me to help me make the transition. So that was the first challenge of going from being the superstar student to being a student that was struggling. And ultimately, I turned it around, and I graduated, and you know, was successful and able to go on to a great college. Um, and then the social transition, while I, I adjusted and did well, ultimately ultimately served in student government. I was on the pep squad. I was in school plays. I played the violin. I did you know every great thing you could do in high school. But that first year was a year of transition and just realizing this was a tremendous opportunity. And whatever um, struggles or feelings I had about, you know, sort of leaving my friends at home behind, I had to realize it wasn't about leaving them behind or, you know, um, or giving up, you know, my life in Compton, but it was about, you know, embracing new opportunity and, and take and being thankful that I had that opportunity. And, and in the other way it shaped me is it helped me to realize that not everybody would have those kinds of opportunities. So because I was blessed to have that opportunity and had so many since then, that it's incumbent on me to always you know, give back and always to go back and help someone else to have those same opportunities. So I sort of, I live by the motto, of to whom much is given, much is required. And also I live by a, a servant leadership model, which means that you know, you're know you a leader, but it's com- the best leaders are those who realize it's best to be in service, to use your leadership for good. And so the, that experience in particular helped me to begin to form those, those principles as life principles that I live by and that I lead by.
0: So you went on to become an employment and labor lawyer and a mediator and arbitrator. Um, And I know there are three or four areas of law where you're seeing some of the greatest changes. And and we can talk about that. But I guess we even since we last talked about this interview, I mean, the coronavirus pandemic has set in. And so we kind of now have to layer in the impact of of the pandemic on all of these areas of employment and labor law. Uh, And so how would you say, what is the biggest impact? Obviously there's millions and millions of people who are out of work. Uh, How is this going to shape your practice and what are the biggest challenges you see?
1: Well, well, I have been this last week, two weeks have literally um, been on the phone with employers, employees um, that are really, and employees that are really trying to understand you know what to do. This is beyond anything that we have faced in recent American society and global society as well. There have been pandemics in the past, but none in my lifetime where the entire community um, was shut down, where people could not go to work. They could not go to church. They could not, you know, be outside or spend time with their family and friends. So this definitely has shaken the world and the the world of work so my biggest advice to employers is you know one obviously many employers have had to make some tough decisions that you know even the best of employers that care about their employees and want treat their employees well um just by virtue of the fact that they don't have patronage at their business um or that, um, you know, people aren't using their services. Even I in my own business have, um, I was scheduled to begin some new contracts for different services. And I put a hold on those contracts simply because I don't know what's going to happen. So my advice to employers has been, you know, as you navigate this, still remember, you know, yes, the, the rules are different, our circumstances are different, but the rules are still the same. That if you're going to lay people off or if you're going, to, you're going to terminate people, a basic principle of employment law is that it has to be for legitimate business reasons. Well, in a state like California, employees are at will. So you can terminate for any reason as long as that reason is not illegal. So in this instance, if employers are legitimately terminating folks, which is you know not unimaginable, uh, terminating folks because they simply can't keep the doors open or keep them open at this time, then you know that's a perfectly valid reason for an employer to terminate someone. But where some employers can get into trouble is if they're using this pandemic, this global crisis as a way to try to get rid of folks that they've been wanting to get rid of for a while, but now they're sort of using this as a as an excuse to get um, rid of folks. And I don't think many employers are doing that, but where they have to be careful if they are suddenly making decisions based on discriminatory or illegal factors. So say, for example, there's a woman or a disabled person or person that's of a certain religious belief that, you know, for whatever reasons, an employer may have some bias against that person and now they're using this as an opportunity then that's where employers need to be careful. They need to be sh- to make sure that any decision they make is based on true legitimate reasons, which is we simply cannot afford to do business anymore. Or if an employer picks, you know, they're going to maintain, keep their doors open in a limited fashion and they're going to lay off all the women and keep all the men or vice versa, or lay off, you know, all people of a certain religious beliefs and keep everybody else, then those are reasons that could be a red flag for what we call, you know, traditional discrimination. So I've been encouraging employers just to be, think about, you know, first to stop and to be calm, not to panic and to think about this in a methodical way that makes sense. And that does not put them in a situation to where after this is all over that they suddenly have, you know, a crisis on their hands of dealing with, you know, discrimination suits. The other thing is employ- many employers are having to think through, you know, their sick leave um, policies and their other leave policies. because Many employers are trying to keep their employees on as long as they can. And so they are expanding their policies to, you know, expand the time that people can be out to um, exp- you know, provide people paid leave when they otherwise would not be required to, um, just to try to help people out. You know, and obviously we see examples with the bigger companies like Starbucks, who um, you know, are paying their employees for the next 30, committed to pay their employees for the next 30 days, whether they work or not. So you know, helping uh, small employers in particular that want to try to figure out a way to keep their employees on board, Helping them to do that in a way that's legal, that's consistent with their policies, and that doesn't put them in, you know, a precarious situation after all of this is is over. And then, obviously, employees just trying to understand, you know, throughout the years, employees always get employee handbooks, and you know, we read them. Sometimes we don't read them, but this um, crisis is forcing employees to try to understand what are the benefits actually available to them? What types of leave are available to them? Um, so I've just been on the phone with employees even and doing Facebook Lives and other you know, ways to try to get the word out and give people an opportunity to ask, ask their questions um, of really trying to understand what are my rights in this situation? And so while the... Uh, I, I will just close this thought by saying you know, at some level, the pandemic makes us feel like, okay, we all the rules go out the door. We could just throw all the du- rules out the door. Nothing matters now. We can do whatever we want. And my biggest caution is to say, no, they don't. The rules are still the rules. And we got to, you know, although this is, you know, causing many to panic and to um, react in a, you know, react in a way, you know, to just simply react, that we can't react, especially as business owners. we got to stop, we got to be smart and make sure that we're getting good counsel in terms of how to navigate these issues.
0: One of the uh, cutting edge areas of law that you've been looking at is uh, the gig economy with the advent of Uber and DoorDash and Lyft and all of these companies that have come up. Uh, What are some of the issues that you are facing in the gig economy? Um, Specifically with
1: the pandemic or just generally?
0: I guess both, I guess you can't
1: separate them anymore. So prior to the rise of um, COVID-19 in the workplace and in society, there's been this last year, two years or more, there has been um, lots of activity, legislative activity activity in particular um, in California, where um, states and legislatures are trying to grapple with how to develop laws that protect the gig economy, not only in terms of issues of discrimination and harassment, but probably more so in the area of how they're paid. Um, So you take a company like Uber or other gig economy companies their in um, their employees or their workers are were classified as independent contractors, which meant ideally that they worked whenever they wanted to work. When they worked, um, Uber would pay them a percentage of the fares collected, etc. Many employ many of the workers said, wait, you know, we need benefits. We need um, a guarantee of wages, um, at least minimum wages when we're working. And so they banded together to try to be reclassified as employees. And in California, um, the legislature p- passed effective January 1, a law, which basically, and it, it's, a, it's an evolving law. There's been case law before this, um, but basically says that the when an employer classifies someone as the contractor that the presumption is really that they are an employee and that there is a 3 prong test to determine if they are an employee or a contractor and that test really centers on whether the employer has control over the worker and whether the worker has um, other, you know, other clients and other services that they provide outside of that employer. And so if you look at the average um, Uber driver or Postmates delivery person or what have you, this is really just a supplemental job for them. You know, is what the courts are saying and the legislature is saying. They really aren't people who are in business and who have other clients. This is just another way for them to supplement their income. And so these individuals really are employees. And so that's kind of the the state of the law that the presumption is that if you are working as an indi- you know an individual just providing a service at the direction of an employer. Or a company that you really are an employee, and so that's obviously had a great impact even before the coronavirus crisis, in that these companies, the gig economy, uh, economy companies, are really trying to figure out how to re, you know, revise their business models because their entire business models were based on classifying these individuals as contractors, which means that means they didn't have to think about benefits. They didn't have to think about overtime. Um, they didn't have to think about meal breaks or rest breaks. So now they have to think about all of those questions. In the reverse, there are many, while there are many workers who really advocated for these changes, there are many like journalists and musicians and and others who prefer, who've indicated that they prefer to work Um, as contractors, because they do have, you know, journalists might have multiple newspapers or print media that they write for. And they want to be able to to do that without, you know, piecemealing being, you know, treated as an employee, where if you're an employee, there's a much higher expectation that you're sitting there, you're available eight hours a day. You know, if the employer says do something, you're going to do it. Um, So they prefer their, their independence. And they're also able to, the way they make a living is by putting together income from multiple sources to have that add up to a decent living. So there are many who aren't happy with the direction and are seeking exemptions. And I think where the legislature has to be thoughtful and more creative is realizing that our... You know we're in a different economy now. We um, that work has changed. Work has changed from the industrial work age, in that we ha- now have a third category of workers that are, you know, really using opportunities like these to to make extra income. Um, so they they definitely don't qualify as contractors. But is there a third category that we can create that still allows the Companies like Uber and and similar companies to come about because they are offering a service and are creating opportunities for people that they wouldn't, that individuals would not currently have. So we allow those companies to be successful, but at the same time, protect the rights of workers and make sure that people are not being taken advantage of in the work that they provide. And then the last thing I'll say in this coronavirus crisis. You know, there's obviously an impact on employees, but the difference is employees are able to apply for unemployment. So hopefully that the employees impacted will be able to get, you know, some supplement during this time. And then the federal government and many state governments have passed laws that are providing other supplemental income and opportunities to individuals who are employees. The individuals who might get lost in this whole pandemic and really might suffer substantially are the small business owners and independent contractors that won't qualify for unemployment, particularly if they haven't worked, you know, as an employee in many, many years. Um, So I know there's conversations around offering loans and, and other opportunities to individuals that fall within that category. But um, this perhaps proves the point of the legislature that if you're sort of in this middle place where you're, you're like an employee, but you're not classified as an employee in a situation like this, you may not get all the benefits that those who are employees are getting. And so, you know, hopefully people have, you know, ideally these individuals would have savings and so forth, but we know that's a whole nother discussion that it's very difficult for Americans to save because, you know, our, our salaries and our income don't always have not progressed at the level that it takes to, to live, particularly in major cities like Los Angeles or New York, et cetera, and also be able to have savings and reserves for times like this. So it's, it's a, a tough issue all around.
0: It's kind of interesting looking back at your life that your maternal grandmother was, you know, fighting for the for the rights of a lot of these types of workers, and and here you are, you know, kind of looking at a lot of the same issues, but with a huge uh, epidemic or pandemic layered on top of it.
1: Right. Yep. No. Um. For sure. For sure. And just thinking back to those early times, um, that even then. And we, you know, we didn't have the type of pandemic or global crises that we have now, but even then the importance of ensuring that you provide, that our our government provides a safety net for individuals that are most vulnerable and um, in times like this.
0: So looking back at that, that young girl who was watching her maternal grandmother, you know, when she was seven or eight or nine and when, uh, and fighting for, you know, The rights of workers and looking at the journey that you've taken you know from Compton to studying in Brentwood and on to college and doing labor law and employment discrimination law what would you say looking back at that young woman about the journey that you have undertaken there's that
1: it's been a good one I mean I feel like everything happens for a reason I feel like each experience um, if you Recognize it allows you to grow and uh, to become a better person. And I just and I feel that I have been tremendously blessed. and there have been so many mentors and uh, individuals that have looked out for me over my life and saw my energy and desire to to be better, to do better, to give back to my community and they've helped me along the way. And so I mostly just feel blessed and feel that at times when it's been a tough experience, like going from, from Brentwood to, from Compton to Brentwood or moving from Birmingham to California. Although that wasn't tough because I was a kid and all I saw was Disneyland and the beach and having fun in California. Um, but even that, you know, was a, a transition. And I'm just thankful because each of those experiences, and I didn't even talk about, um, part of what Brentwood did for me is it exposed me to new opportunities also in terms of college. Like, so I knew for, I knew I would go to college, but I had no idea about the colleges outside of Harvard, Yale, places like that, of the different types of colleges that were available, particularly on the East Coast. And one of my teachers, uh, Ed McCaddy, who was from the East Coast, African-American man, and had kind of also grown up in an independent school world. He had gone to um, Amherst College and he encouraged me to think about liberal arts colleges and made arrangements for me to go on a a college visit trip to the East Coast. And I, again, there I saw a whole new world of colleges and the types of colleges available and that were great and in um, and, and these wonderful places in New England and other places. And so, but for that experience and exposure, I never would have gone to a school like Amherst College. And in fact, my you know family and my friends are like, where are you going to college? Is that a real school? We thought you were smart. Why are you going to a school like that? <laughs> because we just didn't know about that, where I came from. And so, of course, now I'm a big fan of liberal arts colleges. But um, so every experience shaped me. Every All along the way, there were individuals that... Um, saw my energy, saw my zeal, saw my zest, and wanted to help me to achieve my goals. And so when I look back on my experiences, I think I'm mostly just grateful and I felt a tremendous sense of duty and responsibility to help create those opportunities for others.
0: Angela, thank you so much for joining me today and for this lovely and timely conversation. Thank
1: you. It's been my pleasure.
0: Angela Reddick-Wright is the founder of the Reddick Law Group in Los Angeles. She's an employment and workplace mediator, an arbitrator, and a workplace and Title IX investigator. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Core, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.